I have a friend named Jeffrey who is a very kind, thoughtful adult. But as a kid, very, very angry kid. When he was 11 years old, he, he was walked walk down to the basement of his house where his older brother was hanging out with some of his friends. And uh, when his older brother saw him, he made a crack about Jeffrey, made fun of him. His friends started laughing. So Jeffrey turned around, walked back upstairs, went and found his dad's gun closet, which happened to be unlocked because his dad had just gotten back from hunting, grabbed a rifle, walked back down the stairs, pointed it at his brother. And as his friends scattered to the corners of the room, and his brother sat there trembling, he pulled the trigger. Now, fortunately, it was not loaded. But unfortunately for Jeffrey, his father heard the commotion, found out what was going on, and gave him a childhood-defining punishment. We'll leave it at that. Now, why was his dad so angry? (laughs) Could have killed his brother, right? Could have ruined his young life, right? Changed the family history for generations, maybe. And Jeffrey needed to recognize the seriousness of his actions, needed a reason to think twice before he ever pointed a gun at someone. Well, this month we are going to be studying a book, uh, a book of the Bible for the whole month of July that has as one of its themes God's anger, and it is the book of Zephaniah. Now, my guess is that most of you have never heard a sermon on the book of Zephaniah. Before this week, I don't think I had ever heard a sermon on the book of Zephaniah. Uh, and probably a lot of us don't know really what it's about, anything about it, except it's probably in the Old Testament, right? And it is, yes, it's in the Old Testament. It's in the, very, the end part of the Old Testament, uh, the last 12 books, which are called the Minor Prophets. And uh, they're called minor not because they're any less than the major prophets, but because they're shorter. Right? And Zephaniah only has three chapters. So it's a short book, but it, it packs a powerful punch. Uh, the makers of the Bible Project uh, declare about the book of Zephaniah, they say that it contains some of the most intense images of justice and love of any of the prophets. It shows God's passion to rescue his world from human evil and violence in order to create a world where everyone can flourish and in safety and peace. And I think that's a great summary. In fact, I've entitled this series The Sweeping and Singing God because those are two uh, of just really uh, strong images of God's actions in the book of Zephaniah. Uh, the basic plot of the book is that God is going to sweep away evil from out of Israel and from off of the earth in order to give his people a safe place in order to worship and uh, so that he can then exalt over them with singing, quiet them with his love. But before we get to the singing, we have to get to the sweeping. And so we're going to start in chapter 1, with Zephaniah chapter 1 is is really a treatise on the wrath of God and the coming day of judgment. And so I can't wait to get into this with you. So if you are able, would you please stand for this reading of God's word. Zephaniah 1, the first six verses. 
The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, and those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is God's word for God's people and for the good of the world. Please be seated. Now, growing up, I was always taught that if you were going to give someone critical feedback, right, constructive criticism, that it's always best to start with something affirming, right, something encouraging before you share that uh, constructive criticism, right? Like you might say something like this, I, I see that you have been just working so hard today, unfortunately you cut down the wrong tree. Or you know, I know you are so enthusiastic about that pro- this project, and I'm so happy about your enthusiasm, but you cannot just fire everyone who disagrees with you, right? A little affirmation helps the bad news go down a little easier. It helps the person know that you're on their side, despite the hard things that you might have to say. But when the word of the Lord comes to Zephaniah, it's interesting God doesn't start with encouragement or affirmation, does he? He opens with a blistering rant. I am going to wipe you out. I'm going to put an end to everything on the earth. That's how he starts. And the obvious first question we have to ask when we're studying this book is, whoa, why is God so angry? Why is God angry? And let's be real, right? I mean, some of us think, isn't it a little beneath God to be so angry? I mean, isn't, isn't anger kind of a lack of self-control? And isn't one of the fruits of the Spirit self-control? Isn't anger that bad emotion? That, that's why we have anger management classes, right? To manage your anger, to control it, to get rid of it. Well, I don't think you have to think very hard to recognize that there are really two different kinds of anger, right? Good and bad anger, what we might call righteous and unrighteous anger. A righteous anger gets angry on behalf of another, right? It arises when injustice happens, when the poor or the weak are taken advantage of, when somebody that you love is being threatened or hurt, There is righteous anger that arises on behalf of them. Unrighteous anger tends to be about us and our pride and the result of our blocked goals, right? And our frustration with that. Um, 
you know, when someone cuts you off in traffic or someone gets that promotion that you wanted or they criticize you. Our, our pride says, I'm angry. Now, does anger ever accomplish something good? Well, I think some of our favorite stories uh, are, are stories that are fueled by someone's anger. I think of the movie Braveheart, right? William Wallace is angry at the, uh, the English army that is occupying Scotland and uh, under the control of a terrible, abusive king. And the, the, the English army lords over the Scottish people unjustly, routinely takes Scottish women away from their husbands. And his anger is stoked, right, when his own wife is killed by a member of the English army, trying to take advantage of her. Was his anger justified? I think we would say yes. And it became the fuel for the fight for independence, for justice against the oppressors. The Bible itself can be read as a story of anger, right? We see Satan, who is angry with God because he cannot be equal with God. And that anger leads him to want to destroy God's people and to want to thwart God's will. And then we see God's anger, anger at evil and at Satan and at how we have cursed his good creation, how we have continually made war with one another and broken covenant with God. The difference is Satan's anger and so often our anger comes out of selfishness, right? I wanted this, I didn't get it, and I am angry. God's anger, however, is always an extension of his love, right? God loves so deeply that he is angry when his beloved are harmed. And he tells us here in verses 2 and 3 what he's going to do with his anger. He's going to do a great sweeping of evil, right? Like a, like a homeowner who sweeps all the dirt out of their house to make their house more hospitable, healthier for people to dwell in. God is going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And so he's, he's angry, but the next question we might ask is, with whom is God angry? Because when you first read these verses, it looks like he's angry at everyone and everything, isn't he? Now, there's a really interesting rhythm to uh, God's pronouncement of what he's going to do with his anger in verse 3. And what, what it is, is verse 3 is really a reversal of God's creation back in, in the order of creation in Genesis 1. Okay, so if you remember, if you've read Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, he creates light and dark, he creates land and sea, and then on the fifth day, what does he do? He creates the fish in the sea, and then the birds in the air, and then on the sixth day, he creates the beasts on the earth, and then he creates humanity, men and women. Now look at verse 3. He says, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. It's like he's walking back the creation, walking back what he has made and undoing it. 
Now, the question I think, maybe you thought about this, is why? Why is God cursed? Why is he wiping away the fish and the birds? What did they do? And the answer, I think, is, well, really nothing. I mean, they're just doing what they were made to do, right? Fish were made to swim and eat. Birds were made to fly and eat. That's what they do, right? They are, they are living according to how God has made them. But who is not living according to how they're made? Us, right? Humanity. Really, the source of God's anger here is humanity. And specifically, his people in these first few verses. Because they are living, they are not living according to how they are made. They are rebelling against their maker, Right? And because of that, the animals and the creation, the plants are being cursed because of it. And that's essentially what Paul says in Romans 8. He says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And he says creation's waiting with groaning for that curse to be lifted. Right? Part of the results of the fall of Adam, the results of our sin, is that creation was cursed, right? And, and subjected to futility. We see that echoed here. But another, another clue as to why God is doing away with the animals is found in the middle of verse 3, all right? You know, he says, I'm going to sweep away man and bee, sweep away the birds and the fish. And then he says, and the rubble with the wicked. Now, that word rubble, uh, it's translated differently in different uh, English Bibles, translations. Uh, some translations say the ruins. I'm going to wipe away the ruins with the wicked. Probably the best translation of the Hebrew word there is stumbling blocks. All right, and actually the American Standard and the King James both translated that. I'm going to sweep away the stumbling blocks with the wicked. What's a stumbling block? Right? A stumbling block is something that keeps you from walking in the path. Right? You wonder why there was a box here. That's why. It is something that keeps you from walking. And in this case, walking with God. Now, the more common biblical term which we read here, is idol, right? Idols are stumbling blocks, and they are things that keep us from worshiping the one true God. Now, idols don't have to be a bad, bad things, right? They can be neutral or even good things in and of themselves, things like money, family, career, right? In the right perspective, those can all be blessings in our lives, but when we make our lives, when we build our lives around just getting money or idolizing our career, even our families, they become idols. When we make them more important than our pursuit of God, they become stumbling blocks, idols. And we see that theme of idolatry in the rest of this, this, these verses, right? Talk about the idolatrous priests, those who bow down to the hosts of heaven, Right? I think they're like star gods or, or uh, you know, like horoscope stuff. And those who swear by Milcom and worship Baal. Who was Baal? We see that name all over the Old Testament. 
Baal was a god that was worshipped by many of the nations surrounding Israel. Right? He was a, a winged creature who was, the, was thought to be the god of life and fertility. And interestingly, a lot of the gods of the pagans were modeled after animals, which may be why Zephaniah here calls them stumbling blocks. And the reason God is so angry was that Baal, that all the Israelites are running after, right, to worship, Baal is not real, right? He's not the God of life and fertility. And God's people who are supposed to be defined by the worship of one God, Yahweh alone, they're running after this false God of the nations, and they are depending upon him for life and salvation. And God says, when you run after that, that's an empty dependence. You will not find life and salvation there. That is the way of death. And so the stumbling blocks around Israel have made them, as verse 6 says, those who have turned back from following the Lord. Now, it's a good thing that we don't have, we don't have idols today, right? We don't make stone carvings to bow down to, right? We don't have anything that will keep us from worshiping and pursuing God, right? You know, this, uh, this last week I turned another a number of age, and as I was thinking about reflecting on my birthday and the one coming up next year, which is somewhat significant, I've uh, been asking myself, what is it that keeps me from loving God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? And the thing I keep coming back to is, I think, these two things, comfort and pleasure, right? I want to enjoy life. Again, that's not a bad thing, right? That's a good thing. God wants us to enjoy life when it is motivated by and informed by and connected by love for God and love for neighbor. When it becomes an idol for me, though, is when it's disconnected to God and neighbor, right? I just want to be by myself. I want to do all my hobbies. I want the world to serve me. And I see that. What, what are your idols that are keeping you, that are a stumbling block to keep you from walking with Jesus, from walking with God, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And if God was so angry with his people 2,700 years ago about their idolatry, is it possible that he's angry with us or the idols that we make in our hearts? Well, maybe the most important we, question we can ask and and the last point today is, how, how do we endure God's anger? Well, at first glance, it seems like there's not very much hope, right? Looks like this prophecy is pretty complete. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord, right? God's going to wipe out everything, no exceptions, Well, is it everything? I think we have some good reasons to believe this is what we might call poetic hyperbole, right? That God is speaking in extreme terms to convey to us 
how angry he is, how dire the situation is. And the first thing we need to think about is the fact that God had already made a promise not to destroy everything, right? By the time that Zephaniah was written. In fact, he had done it way back, if you remember back in Genesis, uh, chapter 6 to 9, when God sends a flood on the earth and destroys all living creatures, right? Except there's a remnant, right? Noah and his family and representatives from all the animals of the earth. And he makes a promise to Noah and to the animals, actually. He says, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, right? That's a key part of Old Testament theology. As you trace it through, there's always a remnant, always a seed of promise, always those who will be saved. The question is, how do we become part of that remnant? How do we be saved from the anger, from the wrath of God? And the simple message of Zephaniah and really all the prophets was turn back to the Lord, right? Serve him only. Get rid of your idols and love your neighbor. Stop sinning against others and oppressing the weak and the poor. And the history of the nation of Israel is temporary turns, right? After rebelling and running after other gods, God would send a prophet to come and confront the people with their sin. They would, some of them would repent, turn back to God. But then it was only a matter of time, right? Before they, those stumbling blocks came again, right? Power and, and wealth and the lure of a less demanding God who keep the people from walking with God. What they needed was a different stumbling block. What they needed was someone to take God's anger for them. It's interesting, when we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme of stumbling block. And he says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says this, he says, Jews demand a sign, Gentiles seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. How is it, how could Jesus Christ be a stumbling block to anyone? How is he a stumbling block? Have you ever thought about that? Now, I think you could, you could easily say how he the idea of Christ crucified would be folly to Gentiles, right? There are many people who think of this idea <laughs> that we believe in Christianity, right? That God became a man through a virgin birth, lived a perfect life, and died a death for other people to forgive the sins of others. That seems ridiculous to a lot of people, right? To the natural mind, it is folly, foolishness. Okay, so we can see how it might be followed. But how is it a stumbling block to the Jews? Well, consider this. The way of salvation for many of the Jews, uh, Jewish people in, in Zephaniah's time, and I would say for religious people throughout time, 
was essentially obedience to the law, right? If I can obey the law enough, I will make myself good enough for God. If I can do my duty, if I can do enough good, maybe to outweigh the bad, right? I will be able to be saved, which is essentially a form of self-salvation. Just obey the law, do enough to please God. But here comes Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount and saying, you have heard it said, this was the law. And you thought you could keep it outwardly, but you didn't realize how the law was so much deeper and harder. And you didn't realize that unless your righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees, the greatest lawgivers, like the experts, you could not see the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus over and over said, you need someone to save you because you cannot save yourself. You cannot do enough to fulfill the law. And that's a stumbling block for many people, right? That's why Paul says preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the religious. Because to say that a man cursed and hung on a tree is the only way to save, to be saved is to throw a huge wrench into most people's plan of saving themselves, right? It's a stumbling block to what we all want to do which is to be the hero of our own story, right? Because if Jesus is going to be the hero of the story, that means that I can't be the hero. And on the cross, Jesus took the anger of God on himself so that you and I will not ever have to experience the wrath of God for our sins. Now, none of us really believe that, unfortunately, right? Even those of us, those of you who've, you know, you've, you've studied your theology, you know the doctrine of propitiation that Jesus has taken on the wrath of God, but we all still think somewhere in the back of our minds, but yeah, but I still don't get it, right? I still mess up and God's, Still, he's still got to be angry with me, right? He's still saving up a little bit of anger for me. I'm going to get it if I don't shape up. Listen, to say that is to say that Jesus' atonement was incomplete. It's to say that Jesus only took a part of the wrath of God. And that for whatever reason, God's still saving it up. But that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus took the full weight of divine wrath on himself. And there is none that is being saved up for those who are in Christ, for his people. When you trust in Christ, you become a child of God. And your Father loves you. Now, he may discipline you for your good, but it is not out of anger. It is not out of wrath, and he will never condemn you. For there's no condemnation for all who are in Christ. That, that is the good news, right? 
that takes Jesus from being a stumbling block to becoming the building block, the chief cornerstone of a new and glorious kingdom. Let's pray.